Hello ladies and gentlemen and welcome to another episode of Molecule to Market, where we go inside the outsourcing space of the global drug development sector. As always, I'm your host, Roman Segal, and in today's episode, I'll be talking about the pharma and biotech supply chain with Louise Duffy, PhD, SVP and Head of the Scientific Project Leaders at Abzina. Louise is a senior executive with an extensive background in the global pharma and biotech industry with experience in business development, strategy, R&D, operations and supply chain. Dr. Duffy has more than 30 years experience in the industry, including increasingly uh, responsible positions at GlaxoSmithKline and Janssen. She's very broad CMC and regulatory expertise and experience in personalized medicines, biochemical engineering, chemistry, and biological sciences. Louise is a fantastic guest. I don't think I have made as many notes during an episode as I did with this one today. It's rare that we get a guest that has spent the best part of 30 years in big pharma companies and then decides to move to the vendor side and head up a team at CDMO. So Louise gives some really, really interesting insights into, uh, you know, what life is like, you know, at a a CDMO, you know, after that time with uh, a big pharma, conceptions and misconceptions, which is really, really interesting. Louise also talked about the kind of speed of innovation that she's seeing in her role, uh, the increasing complexity of the molecules that are being handled as well and why this will continue. Just talks about the need for supply chains to be, or, the, or actually an increasing trend towards supply chains um, involving uh, kind of originators, CDMOs, technology equipment, material providers, almost as one group, rather than a kind of traditional uh, linear supply chain, which I thought was really, really interesting. And towards the back end of the interview, Louise provides some uh, interesting insights into current trends and ones that she expects to see. Uh, in the future. And if that wasn't enough, she also provides some really useful tips for, uh, for uh, particularly for female uh, kind of business leaders who are, you know, developing their careers, which was, uh, you know, really interesting, some of the things uh, that she talked about there as well. So I really hope you enjoy my interview with Louise as much as I did. Uh, she was absolutely fantastic guest and, you know, shared so much that we can probably all learn from. Uh, It goes without saying, but I hope you're safe and well and continuing to enjoy Molecule to Market, so much so that hopefully you're going to go on to the App Store and give us a five-star rating straight afterwards. I'll no doubt speak to you soon. Please enjoy today's episode. Hey, Louise. Welcome to the show. Thank you, and thank you for the opportunity to have this discussion. Not at all. It's an absolute pleasure to, to have you and be able to interview you. So um, just to start off with, Louise, uh, please give our listeners a bit of an overview of yourself, uh, you know, what, what you do today, but also kind of, you know, talk us through your kind of career story and how you got into the sector and, and kind of got to how, where you are today. So today I um, head up the most senior technical organization at Abzina, which is a CDMO, a very rapidly uh, expanding uh, group. Uh, We deal with very complex molecules, so the technical organization is key to 
the success of the company. And what I do is twofold. I provide assistance to our clients in developing technical technical aspects of their um, molecules and their program, but I also help uh, internally within Abzina developing what needs to be done. These are new molecules, never been developed before often. How do we take that forward? And lastly, I also do something which is close to my heart, which is really helping to develop and mentor within the company. And I think that um, as I look back on career, that's something that I really enjoyed throughout um, my career. If I sort of step back chronologically, um, I've done a lot of consulting, particularly in new technology areas. And I've, uh, prior to joining Absina, and the reason I joined Absina was a um, old uh, colleague of mine um, who I knew through industry groups, Kimball Hall, who's the president of Abzina, reached out to me and asked, would I be interested in joining as an opportunity to really take the company to the next level, particularly having that broad holistic view of how do we develop new complex molecules, not only technically, but operationally as well. And Prior to uh, doing the, the consulting, um, I was with the Janssen J&J for about three years where I headed up the Strategic Science and Innovation Group uh, within R&D. And this was a group that I built from scratch and it was developed to look at technological innovations that are not tomorrow's innovations, but five years out, what's coming down the pike. Although I will say, looking at some of the things that we're working on, they've come a lot quicker than I anticipated. So I think that's probably a theme. I think the speed of innovation in pharma has accelerated rapidly and uh, aspects such as COVID have only accelerated that. And I, if I move uh, further back, I. Um, worked for GSK for 24 years. And the benefit of that uh, career uh, path was I was able to do an awful lot of different roles within one company. So I have done roles in terms of technology, heading up a technical group, doing tech transfers, scale up. I also uh, did an operational, several operational roles, running uh, a number of sites and also heading up the supply chain. But equally, while I, one of the things that I really enjoy is pushing myself, trying to um, do new things. So I also did about five years in worldwide business development at GSK, which is a totally different view of the world because you're dealing with um, business deals. These are um, licensing deals, acquisitions, mergers, all the way from early discovery through to marketing. And it is that is definitely the type of role where you get a very holistic view of the industry. And in 
the in a large setting like that, the, I know that there people often talk about some of the downsides of working in a large organization, bureaucracy and so forth. But there's also an opportunity to do some unusual career development and jump into different organizations and get a completely different vantage point. And I felt that that was a great opportunity for me to do that. I did that coming out of a technical role, did the business development role, and then moved into the larger scale operating roles and the supply chain where I ran multiple operations globally with an organization of about a thousand people around the globe. So it's, I always like to um, look back and go, well, I thought that was going to be interesting, but actually sometimes you realize just how much you learned as well. And I, and I think that's one of those examples like, oh, I didn't realize I was learning all of this. And, and then prior to, um, joining GSK, I uh, worked for a small um, startup uh, company. This was going way, way back in the start of biotech. And this was uh, up in Canada. And that company still exists in different forms now, but it was interesting developing some of the early processes. And I also worked for an engineering company. So I have uh, spent time building facilities globally. And, and again, these are all experiences that help broaden out your, your viewpoint. You're learning it from the bottom up. And then when you uh, move into roles that are overseeing a bigger organization, you have an understanding of how those things are put together. Well, that's incredible uh, experience. And I think you're the first guest that we've ever had that's gone from now back in time, which I really loved. I think we should do that more often, <laughs> which is really a uh, really creative way of doing it. So do, do you, does the Louise of today class herself as a business person, an operations person or a scientist? I'm guessing it's a combination of all of them. I'm just curious, given that wealth of experience, you've got kind of almost how you identify <laughs> with yourself now in terms of what you do today. I would like to think that it's a combination. Um, I know that I do have to flex a lot. And today, particularly um, in a setting like Abzina, where you're dealing with a portfolio of about 180 different programs, you've got to flex a lot because they're also early development discovery all the way through to later stage products. Um, I do sometimes have to check myself though on the technology side because most people get into technology because they like technology and sometimes i have to step back and go oh hang on i've got somebody really good who can deal with that let them deal with it so i think that for me is something that i i like it so i know that there's always i could do more of that but maybe that's not the best use of my time and the operational and um, business aspects Again, they're enjoyable. I actually um, really like being able to flex from one domain to the other. Mm -hmm. Yeah, I, th I figured it as much that kind of the variety in what you do must be must be great given the kind of uh, breadth of your experience as well. I'm curious to know about obviously you've you've been kind of on both sides of the fence now. You know, working uh, for you know a big pharma company, and and if I understand correctly, your, your time at 
at Janssen was working in development and manufacturing supply as well. And so how's, how's the transition been to the kind of vendor CDMO side? Uh, has it been, has the perception of CDMOs changed now you're on this side? Is it easier, harder, more complicated? Really interested to get your, your take on it. It's a really interesting question. Now, while I was at GSK, I also ran a contracting business where we developed and produced products for outside uh, companies. Uh, we did this to utilize capacity that we didn't need for a period of time. So I had that experience in that setting. But if I look, if I look at you know, jumping the fence and jumping back and forth, I think that the um, contracting out is here to stay. It's probably becoming more um, prevalent. And there's a number of reasons that we can talk about why that might be the case. Um, but I think it helps having been on the innovative side if I could describe it that way, and moving to the CDMO side, because I believe I often understand why questions are being asked, what somebody's being, what somebody is looking for, as opposed to it just becoming, oh, we need this. I can put some context for folks. Um, on the um, other hand, it's always the challenge is always managing and juggling resources. Those challenges are the same, whether it's in, you know production internally in a company or whether it's an external group. So that that hasn't changed. Um, the interesting part about being on the CDMO side is just the vast variety of things that you see. So you're not necessarily seeing more of the same, which you might see if you were in a particular group in, in a large pharma company. You're, you're seeing everything across the board. So that's been quite an eye-opener for me. I didn't quite expect that range of uh, products and also um, therapeutic indications. Mm -hmm. That's really interesting. I imagine you are getting exposure to uh, just so much more on the CDMO side, just purely by the, the variety of projects and programs that I, I suspect you get a uh, sight of. And was, was your perception, well, how, how has your perception of CDMOs changed now you're kind of on the, on the dark side, so to speak? Um, <laughs> is it, did, you know, it was really interesting what you said there about um, innovators and you kind of having an understanding as to why a client is asking that question. I think it's a really interesting area to, to explode. I'm just curious to kind of understand what the, were there any misconceptions? Is there something that you thought about, you know, what a CDMO was like, which actually turned out to be different. And then on the flip side, you know, are there learnings that you have brought to Abzina about, you know, for example, asking clients to you know clarify why they're asking that question, you know, you know, are there things that you, your experience on the innovator side has brought into Abzina that's benefiting them uh, as an as an organization. Yeah, let me address the former question first. I think what I've learned is just how challenging it is on the CDMO side to deal with many many different clients 
expectations and systems. Oh, we want you to use our system as opposed to this system. And it, it it's a very much a juggling act because maybe the system is not that much different from system one or system two, but it's it's another system. And so, for example, if you are um, writing up uh, material to go into a regulatory filing, how do they? How does the client want it done? It's the same information, lightly, but it's presented in a different way, and there's different approaches to it. And I think I probably hadn't given enough thought to that, that the impact of that. On the other hand, that's a value add for the customer, which is I'm not going to give you a vanilla product that any you know could be um, applied to everyone. It's actually very customized for what you need. So, so I think that's one of my big, big learnings. Um, where one of the things I um, believe has been very helpful for Absina that I've brought um, in is the whole concept of understanding uh, the molecule in terms of def make of doing process development. Understand how the molecule works, why it's being designed the way it is. Understand what you're trying to do in terms of creating a purified molecule that can be delivered to the patient. And understand the clinical context in which it's being used. Is it a product that's going to be used in the hospital, IV? Is it a home delivery? Because I think this helps people connect very much the bigger picture and connect very much to the patient. And after all, what we're doing, even if we're CDMOs, is we are developing products for patients. And, and I think giving that kind of um, insights of how this all ties together has been something that people, A, have welcomed and it's helped streamline people's thinking. Well, I mean, I think it's a terrific point, that latter point. I'm, I'm interested to know, how, I suppose, how it helps, right? So if you've just described there, if if I've understood correctly, kind of a, a little bit more holistic thinking around the molecule and its application, you know, in, in patients and in, in that type of thing. How is that, or how does that help, say, the Ebzina team on a, on a daily basis? Is it just the, they're more mindful of the bigger picture or, you know, uh, you know, I'm guessing you know, quality is a given anyway. It's not that it's going to be better quality or anything like that. But um, it, what is it kind of a behavioral shift? I'm just curious to know kind of how that is delivered uh, or you know, what benefits that delivered to, to your team. It's really interesting. So I think there is an element of behavioral behavioral um, thinking that comes into it. People step back and go, oh, this is being used this way. Uh, I think it sparks their interest, their engagement with the molecule. It's not just another molecule number, um, which has an impact on how people think about things. It also has a practical purpose. Okay, this product is going to be given chronically. What do we need to be concerned about with the impurities profile? How do we develop a, pro a product that has the appropriate impurities profile? So there are direct connections that people are making, which they may not have thought about before. Mm -hmm. That's really interesting. So it's almost one thing when you're talking, that's almost like it potentially even sparks more creativity and ideas around 
how to think about it and how to think about its application as well, which I think is uh, really interesting. You're listening to Molecule to Market, where we go inside the outsourcing space of the global drug development sector. The podcast for professionals working in the pharma and biotech contract services space. One thing you said right at the start, which I wanted to, which I kind of circled to come back to Louise is uh, you talked about the speed of innovation, you know, has come on a lot in pharma, um, you know, underlined obviously by uh, the COVID-19 pandemic, but in the vaccines that have been developed, I'd uh, love to explore that a little bit more in terms of, um, I suppose, why you were seeing a, a greater velocity of innovation uh, in the sector and, and what's, what's driving some of that. I think what's happened is that COVID has forced certain um, underlying principles to be considered again and not necessarily survived the scrutiny. So, um, for example, with uh, antibody treatments in COVID, it used to be that you would have to get to a clonal um, molecule, you would do your toxicology studies with that, and then you would do your clinical. And there was this movement towards, okay, well, can we do the uh, toxicology with stable pools? Because after all, your molecule is the same. You're exposing the uh, animals in the tox study to the material. And that had got some traction but that's almost become the norm, that's norm under COVID. And in some cases, there's been an acceptance by the regulators. And I think we need to give the regulators a lot of credit here that they're willing to think about these things and say, given the patient risk and benefit, this makes sense. But there's been use of pooled material in early clinicals, and it's all in terms of being able to speed things going forward. So now if these you know, sacred cows are falling, there's this discussion within the industry, well, A, can we continue that for other products that are being used for, you know, life-saving treatments that are where there is an unmet need? And then the second follow-on question is, what else should we be looking at and saying that that is a... um, monument that doesn't necessarily need to stand anymore. And what's happened is over years, uh, approaches to developing processes for uh, pharmaceutical products have developed and have evolved. And they haven't always kept up with how technologies moved as well. So it's good to have a rethink. That's really interesting what you said there. And uh, I think you, you, I absolutely agree with, uh, you know, I suppose the COVID almost forcing the hands and you know questioning some kind of strongly held <laughs> beliefs and ways of of doing things. Do you? Is I'm hoping. Well, I'm guessing you're hopeful that uh, these newer ways of doing things are here to stay. Or do you think Louise, there is a risk that we kind of go back to the way that the way that we did things, and you know we end up slowing down innovation again just yeah given given your experience i'm guessing you're well qualified to uh, give a perspective on that 
So I guess the short answer is I hope not, but <laughs> but there is another um, aspect to this. So if you look at what's been happening in the last 10 years in product development, uh, products have, I guess, almost split into two different cohorts. There are um, the large volume, very standard products that are maybe more of existing technologies. And then there are these small, very customized, very small indication products. And this is particularly true in oncology. Very targeted, really are able to treat subsections of a particular indication. In order to be able to deliver many, many small volume products to patients, even to try them in clinicals, I think all pharma companies are facing this struggle with how do I manage such a broad portfolio? And if you take some of the changes that have happened under COVID and look at other innovations, I, I would argue that we can get more products into early trials with patients quicker and at less expense to be able to see if they work because not everything's going to work. work. So it's a question of getting a higher probability of success. So if that hurdle can be lowered, then we'll be able to have more customized treatments for patients that are more likely to be successful. That's really interesting. In, in what you said there about that kind of managing uh, the breadth or, or a broadening portfolio, do you, do you think that's one of the things that's driving greater outsourcing? So where you have innovative companies that are not going to have, um, especially especially for the small customized indications, they're not going to have every possible capability in-house and that kind of fail fast mentality within that as well. Do you think that's driving more kind of contract contracting in, in the sector? I, I think it. I think it is, and in two ways. I think some uh, some companies are going. We're not sure we want to actually develop this capability in house. We'll give it to an expert in whatever area it is. The other aspect of it is okay. We have this capability in house, but because we have such a broad portfolio, so many candidates already in the clinic, we cannot handle anymore. How we can outsource and get more of these products quickly into the clinic. So I, I think we'll, that's driving a lot of the why outsource, even if you do have internal capability, and even if you potentially think if the product's successful and I'm taking it forward, I want to bring it back in-house. On the other hand, maybe I, maybe I don't, you know, longer term, maybe it's worth having it outsourced because that allows me to manage my capacity in other ways. I, I think pharma companies have started to rethink how they develop and produce products in a holistic manner, which also includes the CDMO world. Mm -hmm. One of the trends, Louise, we've seen on guests in the last, particularly in the last six months or so, has been a real sense that CDMOs are now seen less transactional and more kind of part of the story and part of the 
you know, fundamental part of the supply chain. Is that would would you agree with that, or um, is there you know is there still a transactional element to it, or you know certainly with the partnerships you have with Abzina, are you seeing more of a closer knit, uh, reliable partner type uh, ethos as opposed to kind of you know <laughs> vendor customer, which I imagine was very uh, you know typical twenty years ago or, or something like that. Yeah, I I agree. I th- I mean, and particularly, you know, if you're developing very complex molecules, it's not like you can hand it over and go, oh, here are the keys, off you go, <laughs> right? So that really close collaboration is um, important. And we, I would say, if I look at what Abzina is doing, we have a sort of range of those collaborations from almost like you're part of the company's team to maybe a little bit more of a distance, but still very, very involved. And with the complexity of molecules continuing, I think that's a trend that's going to continue. And I would add that there's also been another shift, and that's with vendors of uh, equipment and materials. They've become a very tight part of the whole discussion. Mm -hmm. So it's really a triumvirate that you're looking at. The originator the CDMO and the suppliers and working very closely together. And it's all around the technologies that are being used for these very complex molecules. That's so interesting. That's a really interesting uh, kind of almost mini, uh, almost mini supply chain there. You mentioned kind of originate a CDMO and technology, equipment, materials. It's almost you know, historically a very linear top-down supply chain, but the way you described it was almost a little bit more pod like where you're all in it together and working together a lot more closely and tight knit, which is really a unique way of, of looking at things. And I have a really random question, but I'm going to, I'm going to ask it anyway, Louise, it's a bit like a you know, kid in a candy store, you know, you're speaking to someone like yourself at times. What, and obviously you can't break confidence or anything with clients is, do you ever see something in, you know, you mentioned 180 projects or, or so that you guys work on. Does something come in that really catches you by, or I suppose, uh, grabs your excitement where you see whether it's the therapeutic area, whether it's the technology, whether it's the molecule, which kind of stops you and almost takes your breath away of like, wow, this could, this could really change the world or, you know, the, you know, make lives better for a patient population. I'm just curious to understand, does it, does it feel operational? Like, okay, we're on to the next one, on to the next one, or does every so often one just catch, catch you and, you know, really kind of uh, you know, make your day, <laughs> I imagine. Without getting too specific, the short answer is yes. And I was recently in discussions with a client about the project they have for neonates that could really change the outlook for these neonates going forward for the rest of their life. And you're thinking that is absolutely spectacular that they have actually figured out this is what we need to do early in life for these tiny, tiny infants. And it has a lifelong impact. And it's that kind of thing that you you look at and you go, that's not just a day-to-day job. That's an opportunity to really change things. I love that. It's so lovely to hear because I think that's one thing that we often miss working in the sector day in, day out is, you know, delivering client projects, making sure products delivered on time, you know, meeting clinical milestones and, you know, getting commercial products on the market. But that kind of softer, 
you know, patient impact and being involved in things that will ultimately change people's lives. So I think your experience in big pharma and, you know, the, the time you've done on the innovative side will no doubt kind of play a role in that, having that mindset, which is great to hear. Um, one thing I wanted to ask you about, you said right at the start, uh, you know, when talking about your current role and you talked about mentoring uh, and leadership. And I was going to ask, you know, a, I presume you do that type of role at Abzina now where you're playing a, a coaching and mentoring role. But I'm also curious to know, you know, what what mentorship and coaching you've had in your career that's that's enabled you to to develop such a, a varied and successful career. You know, what what is what does that mentorship look like? So if you know if I'm a female working particularly a female leader working in the sector looking up to you louise listening to the podcast today thinking i wonder what type of support she she got and what that looked like and how that worked if you're able to describe that that would be that would be great yeah i i'd be happy to and i guess i would say one of the things that um i'd want to say right at the outset is i feel that i've had great mentorship from both male and female leaders and i and I think it's important for um, female candidates not to assume everything. You you can get great learnings from both. just <laughs> other female learnings. Yes, exactly. Um, I was very fortunate uh, when I first started at GSK with part of Welcome at the time. Uh, my boss, who was very experienced in the industry, he had a great way of developing his um teams generally and he did a great job of mentoring and it was really simple things but very impactful we would be visiting a facility to look at could we fit a product in and his kind of guidance was every facility you go to you can learn something go through it you may not like 90 percent of it but there'll be one or two things remember those pay attention and just that's such a simple thing to change how you look at things and then other mentors that I've had in terms of female mentors a lot of the feedback um, I had from one of my bosses who was a female leader very accomplished part of what she was able to impart was how do you as a female leader come across what's your presence what smart things can you do to improve your presence in a setting. And, and again, sometimes these things weren't nuclear science or anything. It was really simple little things. Like how about summing up a conversation at the end of the conversation? And that tells everybody in the room, you've understood exactly what's being talked about and you've captured it and you're able to drive the conversation. So I, I think there's lots of different aspects that I've learned from different leaders and mentors I've had, but I'm always struck by how often it's not the the really complex stuff. It's the really straightforward, but very insightful um, approaches that people are able to impart. No, I've really, that's a, that's a terrific piece of advice that at the end there. And I think uh, it is those simple things. And actually your previous boss who you mentioned, it's one of the things that I often say to, to my team, you know, you look at your diary these days and it's, you know, packed with Zoom meetings and calls and things like that. And if you go into it with a mindset that, you know, at the very least, I'm going to learn something from this conversation. Like that's a that's a very positive mindset to go into something. So even if it's not the most fruitful conversation, if you've learned something from it, then it's worthwhile. So I think that's a, 
really terrific advice that you you mentioned. And I, I want to ask about you know you you know on the face of it you know you know prior to obviously speaking today, Louise, you look at your LinkedIn profile and the and you know your presence online and you know the types of things you've done, your academic achievements, you know you're you're flawless in what some some respects. And what I like to make sure our guests. Uh, oh, sorry, our listeners understand is that actually even the most kind of uh, decorated people that we have that have the honor of interviewing on the podcast have flaws and make mistakes as well. So I'd love you to share, I suppose, not, not when I say career mistakes, I don't mean necessarily, you know, huge bloopers or anything like that, but also things that skills or competences that you're always trying to work on, uh, almost you know, things that you recognize that you're not perfect at and, and need to work hard on. Yeah, it, it, it's it's a it's a really good question to reflect on, and and one of the things, and I think this is probably fairly common with a number of female leaders, but not exclusive to female leaders. I think one of the mistakes, particularly early in my career, that I did not do well was be able to actually be very clear about what was what was I looking for? What did I want to try and get out of a role? How could I really become my own agent in furthering my career? And some of it was the, oh, I need to have done all of these things before I could possibly consider that role. And that tendency sort of holds you back rather than, you know what? I think I'm pretty close, you know, a Pareto effect. Let me let me go for that. And if you don't get it, no, that's not the end of the world, right? <laughs> yeah, yeah. So I I think it's trying to move to more of that that thinking. And I think particularly early on in my career, I was loath to do that. And also uh, keep in mind, so at the time I did my engineering training. Quite often, I was the only female in the um, classroom. I was—I would be working in groups where it was overwhelmingly you were the minority, and you—you sort of feel like, well, I have actually to really show that I can do this. So I think that evolution has been helpful, and I'm hoping that it's less of a hurdle for the generations that are coming up now. Yeah. Well, I hope so too. And I think, uh, again, that's, uh, it's really good advice. And, you know, I love what you said there about the kind of, uh, that tendency to overthink almost. We had a guest on last year who said almost an identical thing, a female leader who said that, you know, uh, women almost wait till they've ticked every box and then some before they apply (laughs) rather than, uh, you know, as you said, no, 80%, 80%, okay, I feel ready and I can grow into that other 20%, which is which is great. And, and Louise, how would your best friend describe you in, in three words? I think the three words would be loyal, but challenging and quite reflective. Very good. And the last kind of few minutes that we've got talking today, Louise, I wanted to ask you, about the, uh, I suppose, the, the trends that we're seeing in the sector right now. We've already covered quite a lot in terms of increased uh, or kind of why increased outsourcing and a little bit around uh, COVID as well. But curious to get your take on any other trends, uh, maybe with even with a, um, I suppose, a, a biologics slant. And, you know, I know you 
primarily work in the large molecule space and the growth there as well. Uh, any any thoughts on you know how what shifts we're going to see in the next few years? Uh, any trends our listeners should be aware of uh, or anything like that? I think um, if I bucket it into trends that I think are already in flight and will continue uh, as a first point, those trends are more and more customized molecules that target indications exquisitely. And as an adjunct to that, more complex molecules. I think we'll continue to see that. Um, the other trends that we will also see is I think you are seeing particularly large farmers starting to really specialize in certain areas and not go into other areas. And that's some of the risk. And you've already seen that happen on the antibiotic side, you know, our new antibiotics being developed. And then as a consequence of that, I think there's going to be an increased role for government and academic um, import engagement. I think countries are going to start asking, should we have the capability to either make vaccines that they don't currently have, or should we be funding areas of the pharma industry that are of benefit to the country as a whole, but are not seen as something that pharma companies are engaged, already engaged in. And I, I, you see some of this particularly already happening in the, the vaccine space, but I think we'll start to see that in other therapeutic areas. So you're going to see a lot more involvement of government, quasi-government uh, settings, whether it's funding the research, you know, like you see in the US with uh, Bader or DARPA, or it's actual engagement by a government setting up, we're going to have an institute that's going to develop this. That's such a fascinating insight that, and I'd written down the, it's almost like the vaccine effect, which is what what you've just described there, kind of increased government interest and intervention, intervention and funding and say vaccines for, for obvious reasons might, if I've understood correctly, could spread to other areas and other types of uh, drug development and uh, manufacturing to potentially potentially localize but minimize the risk, uh, you know, of or the mitigate the risk of actually not getting the right types of medicines and things like that, which I think is a really interesting take. And um, and I think I'm not going to take up any more of your time, Louise, because I've taken up a big chunk of your day <laughs> already. Um, but I wanted to just end by saying thank you so much for being a, a guest on Molecule to Market. Uh, really really enjoyed our conversation today and some of the insights that you were able to impart in terms of your background in pharma and now being on the CDMO side. Uh, yeah, I think they're, they're not, there aren't enough people like you, I think, that have got that balance in both and that bring that perspective to the sector, which I think it's a, it's a great thing for Abzina and, and their clients that you're able to do that. Well, thank you. And I've, I've really enjoyed our conversation. Thank you, Louise. Take care. Thank you. Bye-bye. Hi again, thanks so much for tuning in to Molecule to Market. We hope you enjoyed today's episode. You can find more shows on Spotify, Apple Podcasts, or wherever you like to listen. 
Get in touch with us on our website, moleculetomarketpod.com and follow us on LinkedIn or Twitter and we will see you again next week. You're listening to Molecule to Market, where we go inside the outsourcing space of the global drug development sector. The podcast for professionals working in the pharma and biotech contract services space. Molecule to Market is sponsored and funded by Remarketing, an international content, digital and design agency that helps companies get noticed, raise profile and generate leads in life sciences.